Well, thank you for that truth. We've just learnt with the kids that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. We thank you for thank you for the reality of that, and yet we confess how easy, how easily we can take it for granted. How little we dig into the the depths of it and work it through. And so we do pray as we we work our way through this chapter these next six weeks we do pray that you would be at work among us thank you that you know us thank you that you know what we're like you know what this last week has been this last month this last year thank you you know what's coming up in the year ahead and so we pray that you would speak to us in jesus name amen there's a, um, there's a nagging question in my mind, and to be honest, most of the time I try and ignore it, or push it down, or forget it, or just move on quietly. And the nagging question is this. Why, as believers, are we not better than we are? More joyful. More generous. Less anxious, less grumpy. Why do we still struggle with that sin or that pattern of behaviour or that cycle of thinking? Why do I look back on Christmas um, with a, a sense of guilt from being too grumpy? Why do I so often feel like a slave to my passions or my desires? Why? Why are we not better than we are? Now, no doubt we're not as bad as we might be, and we're likely not as bad as we were. But what is it for you? Don't you long to be more transformed? More more mature? More like Jesus? Further on than you are? Maybe your New Year's resolutions for this year, if you have any, reveal something of that. That struggle, the reality of that question. Of course, New Year's resolutions in one sense are helpful. In another, they're not particularly helpful. They're helpful in that they are an honest identification of where we'd like to be different, where we'd like to grow, where we see the issues. And yet the danger can be they end up being us bullying ourselves or cajoling ourselves or tying ourselves up with rules and regulations. They take care if you've made some. But as we'll see as the chapter unfolds, they're not really a Christian solution rooted in grace. Ultimately, rules and regulations and bullying and cajoling doesn't actually work, doesn't actually change us. So Magdalene wrote, Romans 8 is a chapter for people like you and for people like me. People who, when we're completely honest, are dissatisfied with our Christian lives. Dissatisfied with our maturity in Christ. Who don't want to be so anxious or angry or who do want to be more generous or more joyful. So it's been my prayer, and it is my prayer, that this chapter will be a profoundly practical one for us. That God will use these words for our blessing and for his growth and for his glory.
Before we jump in, I want to just do a very, very little look back on Romans. We'll do more in weeks to come, but I'll drip it in as we go through. And then a little look ahead to the chapter itself as well, just to try and give us the kind of lie of the land, if you like. Looking back at Romans in very, very broad terms, Paul's two big questions are these. Number one, how can I be right with God? And number two, how can I then live a new life as a Christian? And I think what we'll see in chapter 8 is an answer to both of those things. What it means to be right with God, and indeed what it means to be those who live for him. He shows us that we're now free. We're free from condemnation, but we're free as well to live the life we were meant to live. A life with him, empowered by him, pleasing to him. So that's a very brief look back. But then looking ahead to the whole chapter, here's a peek of what's to come. I think there are three ways that Paul points to as he tries to show us what it means for us to grow as Christians. Three things, three places to focus our eyes. Have a look down with me, eyes down. Verse 1 to 4 this week, I think Paul is pointing back at what God has done for us. In one to four, it's a it's a specific point in history. What he did at the cross, it's a reality. You can mark it on a calendar. It's objective. It's a fact that is not changed by how I feel or what's going on in my life or the kind of week I've had. He's pointing back, and then if you see in five to seventeen, next week and then the week after. He points to the reality of our now, remembering who we really are now, remembering that our allegiance has changed now, that our identity has changed now. We're in a new realm now. To remember the power of the Spirit living in us now. Many of our problems come from the fact that we forget who we are. We suffer from this identity amnesia. And that is really dangerous because when you forget who you are, then you forget what's real and you forget what it means to live. Okay, so 1 to 4, back. 5 to 17, now. And then 18 to the end, he points us ahead. Both the hope that we have, it's, it's real and it's coming. Life won't always be like this, says Paul. But also the doubts that we have as to whether we'll actually get there. The doubts that Paul deals with. Will will we make it? How can we be sure we're going to get there? Could something knock us off track? And so he'll finish the chapter with those, I'm convinced that. That's the lie of the land. Let's get into one to four. Two points. As we begin, look back, Paul says, and remember that our penalty has been removed. Our penalty has been removed. A few days ago, and then seven years further, New Year's Eve 2012, many Americans in particular celebrated 150 years since... Any Americans help me? It's the Emancipation Proclamation from President Lincoln. And if you want to up on your American history, as I'm sure some of you won't be, it was a proclamation that gave some 3.1 million American slaves freedom. 
And to remember and celebrate this fact, the actual signature from President Lincoln was displayed publicly. 150-year-old documents. People to come and to see and to remember and indeed to be thankful. But cast your mind back to the 157 years to Freedom's Eve or, or Watch Night Eve as it was called. On that night, history tells us, Americans of um, African descent came together all over the place, in churches, in community halls, in, in houses, in gatherings, throughout the nation, together, tents. Anxiously waiting in a day before the internet, days before mobile phones, awaiting news that this proclamation had become law. You can imagine the nervousness. Many didn't sleep a wink. From the stroke of midnight, midnight, January the 1st, 1863, and according to Lincoln's promise, all slaves in the Confederate States were legally free. As you can imagine, as history tells us, when the actual news arrives, there were songs of joy. There were shouts. There were prayers of thanksgiving. These people were now men and women rather than goods or possessions. Their whole status transformed forever. It was a binding law. It was liberation. It was freedom. And you see, Romans 8 is a chapter about freedom. This is a chapter about things never being the same again. This is a chapter about a status change. Which means everything is different. And of course, 8 verse 1, as we were learning with the kids, is the start of our story for this series, but it's not the start for Paul. There's a background, there's a context, the words he speak of, the condemnation word, has meaning. And so we need to do a little bit of work to try and work out what he's going on about. We need to know firstly that Paul has been talking about something called sin and something called the law. Sin first, and there's a whole load of confusion about sin. Sin is not something we have much time for in our world generally, and it's not something we like to think very much about. We have an allergy to considering sin. But it's something worth us getting clear on. Because the thing is, sin is not out there somewhere. Sin is not what other people do, whoever those people are for you, the murderers, the traffickers, the politicians, them, whoever they are. Sin is not being naughty. Sin is just much more of a trajectory thing. It's just a way of living. It's the way that we naturally live. It encapsulates everything. It's the car with the tracking off, so we always veer away from God and we always veer towards self. It's the natural bent of our human hearts. It's making me do what I don't want to do. Do you remember it's famously there in chapter 7 of Romans, just a page back. Remember how Paul put it? I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I've said before at Maudlam Road, sin is, is the selfish self. Sin is, at the end of the day, me first. Why don't you care what I think? Why don't you listen to me? The law of God, secondly. As Paul has been describing the law, it's as if it's a greenhouse. 
It's there that sin thrives and blossoms and flourishes. It's as if it's a highlighter. It makes us aware of and we see our sin. Earlier in the letter he said, through the law we become conscious of our sin. But then look at how he describes the law in verse 2 of our passage for this morning. It says, from the law of sin and death. Why sin and death? Because Because we can't keep it, and so it can't bring life. You walk out on the God of life, you walk out on his ways, and in comes death. In comes chaos. In comes our world. And maybe you say, there we go. Church. What about making people feel guilty? Putting people in their place, making them aware of their sin and then making, putting them under your control, having power over them. And yet, the great news of Romans 8, the great news is that that is utterly wrong. Because Romans 8 is not a chapter about making people feel guilty, it's about bringing freedom, it's being who we were made to be, because being a slave is a wretched thing to be. It's why there was so much rejoicing and celebration 157 years ago when that proclamation became a reality. It's why today we hate the fact that we're a slave to our own desires, that we keep making the same mistakes again and again and again, and we say we never will, but we do. The same cycles, the same issues, the same shame, the same apologies, the same conflicts, And so what Paul is doing in Romans 8 is showing us what it means to be free. What it means, 7 verse 6, to to serve in the new way of the Spirit. What it means, 7 verse 24 and 25, to begin to be delivered from this body subject to death through Jesus Christ our Lord. The first thing he says then is that our penalty has been removed. How does he do that? Well, to be honest, religion and church and all that can very easily make people feel condemned. And yet Paul says what the law was powerless to do in verse 3, God has done for us. We, We can't liberate ourselves. We can't set ourselves free. We can't sign our own papers. But the very heart of the Christian faith is not about God rewarding good people. It's about God rescuing bad people. I want to say, if that's a new thought for you here this morning, you have permission to zone out and chew over that for the next 20 minutes. Or spend some time this week wrestling with that idea. Paul longs for us to be really clear on this. The Christian faith is not about what we do, it's all about what God has done. It's not him rewarding good people, but rescuing bad people. The problem is, you might be here as a Christian as I would say myself, and yet we keep making it about what we do. But Paul says, remember, your penalty has been removed. How does he do that? How does he set us free from condemnation? What has he definitively done? That point in history, have a look down at verse 3. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. How's he done it? Well, he comes in the form of man. He, he takes on flesh. Notice the word likeness there, though. 
He came as one like us, but actually not completely like us. Not exactly the same, for he had a, a body and a face and hands and knees, and he walked and he ate and he laughed and he, he cried, but he was different because he alone was innocent. And where we struggle with sin, where we long to be kind, but we can't be, where we know that this has his grip on us, where the selfish self always wins. Why, well, for Jesus, he was the one man in history for whom the selfish self didn't. He came in our likeness, and so that qualified him as a sin offering. Which again is loaded language. If you want to understand what it means for God to rescue you through Jesus, then you need to understand something of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. That's the idea of sin offering. Do you remember God's, God's gracious position and provision in making a way for his sinful people to be in a relationship with a holy God? So he rescues them from Egypt. But then how are they, dirty, unclean, sinful, bowing down to other gods, running after other gods, hearts far from him, how are they going to relate to him? Perfectly pure and holy and good and awesome. The, the two just don't mix together. In fact, you can rewind before Egypt. You indeed head right back to the garden, I would argue. In the very start of the Bible, God says, Obey me and you will live. Disobey me and on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And there is the separation. How are the two going to relate together again? The answer is sacrifices. You see, just as God promised, sin does result in death. But actually not the death of the one who sins. Picture the scene. A man turns up at the temple. His hands on the lamb's head, ready to sacrifice. And you know, there's no doubt why the lamb is dying. There's no doubt who the lamb is dying for. The animal dies, so the people don't. And these sacrifices, they're not trying to force God's arm to relate to them, not trying to, to twist his arm, not trying to make God do something he doesn't want to do. They are his initiative. His kind and gracious and good means for reconciliation, satisfying his own holiness. And they're kind of a visual aid that point us forward to a final sacrifice, one where an innocent will be provided, but the guilty may go free. Waiting for this new dawn, waiting for this new freedom, this new life, this new way of living. Which means we are not condemned. You see, there God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. We are not condemned because Jesus was. And I say we, but of course as we were thinking with the children, it's not just we, it's those who are in Christ Jesus who are not condemned. You see, someone must pay the bill. Someone has to deal with the debt that we owe. You can't just walk out the restaurant. Someone has to pay it for you. But for those in Christ Jesus, the debt has been paid. We are not condemned because he has paid the debt for us. Which in one sense is 
complicated but relatively easy to understand. I wonder though if in practice it could be hard to believe. A room like this, there'll be a complexity of backgrounds, a complexity of situations, of experiences, of personalities, of, of regrets, a complexity of reasons why we can't sleep at night, reasons why we wish we could turn back the clock and not do that thing, or indeed do that thing that we ought to have done. And we know what it feels like to be condemned by others. Perhaps sadly, we know what it feels like to be condemned by churches or by other Christians, people who call themselves Christians. Perhaps we even know what it feels like to condemn ourselves. But friends, in Christ, your penalty has been removed. The God of the universe looks at you and says, I do not condemn you because you're in Christ. And there's no sin big enough to, to bring back a bit of condemnation. And no, you don't need to supplement the work of Jesus to make sure you're not condemned. It's done, it's paid for. And yet he says, yeah, I know you. I know what you're like. I know the real you, not the one that you project to others, not the one that you would like to be, not the one that you pretend you are. I don't just know the Instagram you, I know the real you. And still, I do not condemn you. Because Christ was condemned for you. Maybe there are things there to explore in home groups. Maybe there are things to chat about over coffee afterwards. For many, that lurking feeling of condemnation can be very painful and, and debilitating, crushing. But God looks at you in Christ and says, I do not condemn you because Jesus took it for you. What now? What now? What does life look like for us now? as those who are not condemned? It's a good question. We've, um, we've been playing some Monopoly over these past few weeks. Maybe that's where my grumpiness has come from. Do you remember when you pick up a, a chance card or a community chess card and you get various things, you get kind of second prize in a beauty contest and we all go, ha oh, first prize was a gorilla or something. <laughs> Steel family. Anyway, um, sometimes you pick up the, uh, the get out of jail free card and you just save it, don't you? You pop it under the, under the board, just next to you. You know it's there. You know you're going to be okay. It's really, really useful at certain times. You can sell it for £49. But it's particularly useful when you land on that go-to-jail. You know the one just after the yellows and before the greens? You're there. Is the gospel just a, a proverbial get-out-of-jail-free card that... It's not particularly useful until, until the time comes and our hearts stop beating. It doesn't really make much of a difference until then, but really, really, really useful at that moment. Well, Paul would say to us, no. You know, it's not just that our penalty has been removed, but more than that, our purpose has been restored. 
You see, it's not just life that begins then, but it's life that begins now, says Paul. That's what's going on really through the chapter, but particularly clear in verse 2 and verse 4. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Or verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now there'll be much more on this in weeks to come, but for now it just answers the fundamental question of what are we for? What is life about now? What does Monday mean now? And the answer, well, it's the thing that the whole Bible has been pointing towards. It's the freedom to live for our God in relationship with him and to live for him. It's not just that Jesus died, simply we might be forgiven and not condemned and that's it. But no, it's through the Holy Spirit that we can live now. We'll cover this in weeks to come as well, but I just wanted to say something very quickly on freedom. Talks there about freedom. And again, we've said this before, but it's really important we get this clear in our minds. Naturally, our hearts think that to be free means to be in charge of my own life. I'm free when I get to do what I want to do. I get to fill my diary. I get to spend my money. I get to prioritise. And that's our natural definition of freedom that most of us work from. That's definitely a definition of freedom that our world works from. The problem is those things that we think we want end up mastering us and ruling us. And it turns out that we end up not being free, but we end up being slaves to them. They end up ruining us. And we thought we were free, but actually we end up bowing the knee to those things, whatever those things might be for you, whether money or power or looks or friendships or whatever it is. So they end up owning, enslaving and ruining us, but more than that as well, they don't actually satisfy us for that long. They do for a bit, and they're great for a bit. But then in reality, we always need more, or the next thing, or the next thing. The thing is though, when you know you're, you're truly free, and you're free to be the person you were made to be and you're not condemned, and when you know that you are safe and you are loved and you are accepted and you have freedom, that is the foundation to work from, that we might change, that we might mature, that we might grow in Christ-likeness. Not when we're constantly worried about our status, it's like exam conditions, I feel anxious. Have I done enough? Have I passed the test? Is God happy with me? Can I keep him happy with me? But if we know that he is happy with us, if we're not worried about our status, if we're not anxious about our standing before him, if we know that we're safe and loved and accepted, then we can be free to be the people we were made to be. We can be honest about our sin. That's the turning point in Romans 8. That's what will dominate much of his thinking in the rest of the chapter. You see, some people talk about the law in verse 2, the law of the Old Testament being a a bit like the law of gravity. And it's something that just happens. It's just there. We've seen it in chapter 7, if you know Romans 7. It just happens. It's the way the universe functions. We must obey gravity. What goes up, it must come down. They always do. Just the way things are. How do you break the law of gravity? You can't really. 
or at least not easily. The internet tells me people are trying. NASA, apparently, along with various Russian scientists, is seeking to make some kind of anti-gravity machine. How do you do it? It's complicated. To ask Andy London, but he's not here. But how would you do it? You do it by setting up an alternative law. A stronger law, a more powerful law that you might have some progress. A law that, that trumps the law of gravity. And what is Paul's alternative law at work in Romans 8? What is the law that will change things? The law of the Spirit. It's he who brings freedom. Which means we might have much battling still to do. But because of the Spirit, we know we are not alone in our fight against sin anymore. Which means Romans 7 is not the way it is, or it has to be anymore. Which means we don't live a life dominated by fear that when we muck up, he will not want to know us. Which means that we won't be condemned anymore. And that's not the end of the story. Not the end of the story because of how the sermon started, because we still get it wrong, we still muck up, and it's still frustrating, and we think, why did I say that again? Why did I do that again? Why am I in this cycle again? We'll see next week. That's, that's not because the, flat, the plan's failed. It's because the plan's not finished yet. But for now, friends, just know... That in Christ you are not condemned. Whatever that means for you, you are not condemned. You are free from the law of sin and death. Maybe you look back to 2019 with all its frustrations and disappointments. You can be assured that in Christ your penalty has been removed. Whatever kind of a year you had, you are not condemned. Maybe you look ahead to 2020 uncertainties, unanswered questions, and you can know fundamentally that in Christ your purpose has been restored. You might know, not know the minutiae of what's coming up, you might know, not know what's happening in January or February or March, but you know enough, you know what he expects of you, you know that he expects you to live for him with his strength, with his help, by his spirit. But know that our penalty has been removed and our purpose has been restored. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's take a moment and I'll lead us in prayer. Father, as your people, we do know the reality of that dissatisfaction. We know what it means to to not live as your children ought to live. We know what it means to not be as mature as we would like to be, as Christ-like as we would like to be. And so we pray that you would be at work among us. Today and through this little series, might we know the reality of our penalty being removed, that we're not condemned because of Christ, and indeed our purpose being restored what it means to live for you by your spirit. Thank you, we can look back and ahead with humble confidence 
Lord, we look around this world and we know, we see that tension that we've hinted at already. <coughs> the fact that Christ has come and yet he's not returned. The fact that he's come and done his work on the cross and yet the world is still broken. That it's groaning, that it's waiting. We look around the world and we see fires in Australia, we see probable war again in the Middle East, we see not just war on an international scale, but we see it in our own lives. And we long that you would come and bring restoration, that you would bring freedom. We long that you would help us to, to grow. Help us to be those and help us to be those who proclaim a message of looking back to what Christ has done, that objective truth of the now and the brokenness and the overlap of the ages, but then ahead to the future and the hope that we have to come as well. Help us please to to change. Help us to become more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.